Listeners, readers, welcome back for this second installment of our deep dive into Ellen Hildebrand's Summer of 69. So uh, in the first episode, we talked about uh, the title of the book, we talked about some of the prose that we dug into in the beginning, and we talked about the historical fiction elements of the book, both um, the diction and the, uh, the the way that she really invests her characters in the historic events of that summer. So. In the second part, we're gonna talk about narrative voice, we're gonna talk about plot, and we're gonna talk about the range that she has as a writer, all of which are really impressive. Okay, so diving on into the section, second section, narrative voice is something that I find really interesting and fun to dig into. And it was really, I think one of the strengths of Ellen Hildebrand is her ability to use what is called free and direct discourse. So free indirect discourse simply means like essentially a third person narration. So someone is saying, you know, he did this, he did that, she did this, she did that, as opposed to a first person narration, which is I did this and I did that. Um, but, but what she's doing is instead of having one static narrator who's sort of telling the story the whole time, she is very deftly moving from one narrator to another. And in each of these instances, we also get like a pretty decent understanding of, of who these people are and um, both because of the way that they speak and also just, you know, the things that they're getting up to and the things that they're worried about and their situations and their circumstances and their physical, um, you know, surroundings. So she, she, I think, does this amazing job. And she, the other book that I read by her was also, um, it also had this same structure of these different narrations or different narrators. And it's a it's a sort of a device that actually works very well as long as it does feel like the narrators are differentiated enough. It's it's pretty difficult to do, and I think she does an excellent job of it. Okay, we're gonna take a look at three different instances where she has a different narrator um, saying different things. We're gonna look at three of the daughters. So the first one is on page fifty. Um, and this is Blair, who is the eldest daughter. So they're the three older, um, sorry, they're the three older children, and then there is the younger daughter. Okay, so right here in kind of the middle of the page. The very next day, Blair applied to the graduate English program at Harvard. She didn't say a word to Angus, telling herself it was a lark. She merely wanted to see if she could get in. She received a letter three weeks later. She had been accepted. Classes started in January. So I love this. A couple of things, um, if you happen to be following along in your text there, Ellen Hildebrand makes good use of my favorite punctuation mark, which is the M dash. So the M dash is that kind of weird looking dash that's like longer than a normal little dash and it's certainly longer than a hyphen, um, but it is it connects the words, like it sticks them together. And I love it because it's very versatile and you can use it for a lot of different things. And I can tell you that Ellen Hildebrand is always using it very, very well. This to me is the mark of someone who actually reads really broadly because it's a little bit antiquated, the M dash. It's something that you can use if you have a series of commas and you want to sort of differentiate one clause that would be between commas, you can instead set it between M dashes to give it a little extra oomph. Um, you can also offset the last phrase of a sentence with an M dash. There are lots of different ways. Well, those are the main ways you can use it, but I find like the, you know, the possibilities seem endless. So she uses a very nice M dash here. In fact, in her case, 
it's to set off this last part of the sentence. She said she received a letter three weeks later, M dash, she had been accepted. So in this case, you have two, you know, independent clauses. You have two complete sentences that are attached by, uh, by the M dash. So I love a lot of things about this partially. Um, she is someone, Blair is someone who's done a ton, a ton, a ton of reading. And uh, in general, Ellen Hildebrand does an amazing job in this book with intertexts. So intertext is just a fancy word for this idea of, of you know, sort of name dropping books. There's so many different titles, you know, famous, not famously. I don't think any Blair herself is not famous, but when Blair meets Angus, the thing that sort of convinces her that she wants to be with him is that he, in fact, has read a lot of Edith Wharton. And talk about name checking. He mentions an Edith Wharton book. I mean, this is the whole point. It mentions one that's pretty obscure. I love Edith Wharton, but I had not read this book. Um, but but that's, of course, why she falls head over heels in love with him. So for anyone who's a real reader, this is the kind of thing that elevates a beach read from something that's just kind of frothy and thin and, and kind of sensational to something that, you know, you're like, oh, my God, Edith Wharton, love her. Love, you know, like I can really relate to this Blair person. And I also, so we, we see Blair, we're going to discuss arcs later, but this is an example of Blair. You know, she used to teach secondary school, which at, at Windsor, which is this very prestigious school uh, outside of Boston, you have this sense of, of her as someone who's very professional and someone who's very bright and someone who actually has a lot of ambition. You also have um, a nice sense of her here at the beginning as someone who's maybe not being entirely candid with her husband. And, you know, let's be frank, he's a kind of a weirdo working through a lot of different stuff. I have to say, Angus, we didn't ever really get a great uh, impression of Angus, which is fine. Uh, again, the women in this book, I think, are really where uh, Ellen Hildebrand is placing all of her emphasis, which is perfect because, you know, her readership is, is certainly the vast majority of her readers must be women. Um, but we have we have Blair as this person who is smart and ambitious and very learned and well read. So she's using words uh, that kind of match that sort of uh, persona. When she says um, telling herself it was a lark. So a lark actually is something that that it, to me, it sounds very much like Virginia Woolf, which is a gigantic compliment coming from me. But but this idea of um, of, of something being a lark. To me, that sounds like a very, first of all, it sounds kind of dated, again, with this diction from, from the late 60s, but also it's, it's, it's a very sort of literary uh, flourish here. And then I love that she had been accepted is just so kind of declarative. And then classes started in January. So you, you're reminded in this case of, of the fact that a summer is going to pass. She's pregnant. I don't think we know she's pregnant yet. Um, no, in fact, we know she's not pregnant yet. So she, she, you know, the, the summer is going to pass and she has this big plan for January, but it does sort of remind us of where we are in the calendar year. Okay, so that's Blair. Now we're going to move on to uh, Jesse on page 62. So one of the books that uh, Ellen Hildebrand said that she read in preparation for this is Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret which is a really, um, that was, it was published in 1972. So it's perfect because Jesse, who was 13 in 1969, is, is very close in age with Margaret. And there are lots and lots of really beautiful kind of overtones. Are you there, God, it's me, Margaret is such a masterpiece. And Judy Bloom is just 
really just someone who I think is 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 probably sort of I think she's finally getting her due. She is really having a moment, but she's someone I think who people tend to sort of categorize as you know just for kids and 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 not as kind of um, really powerfully intuitive and and formative for a lot of people as she was. So. We are now looking um, at page 62. We're gonna hear about Jesse, who shares a lot of affinities with, uh, with Margaret. It's the family tradition to climb to the uppermost deck and take in the air, as Exalta says. So Jesse follows her mother and grandmother up the metal staircase, first to the main deck, where there are the men's and women's toilets, which are filled with a blue chemical instead of water, and a snack bar that sells hot dogs and chowder, and then to the upper deck, where the sun is the brightest and the breeze the strongest. What I love about this, and Jessie is very consistent as a character, the things that she's worried about, again, very much like Margaret, are, you know, when is she going to get her period? Is she going to fall in love? You know, she buys a new bra with her older sister, which is actually very important because that's something that you would expect her mother to do with her. And so you have this, um, you know, this kind of important family moment that you would share with a mother that really, um, you know, underscores the fact that Kate is sort of checked out and or drunk, both drunk and checked out. Um, but I love this idea of the blue chemical in the toilet. I mean, that's the kind of thing that as a kid, you, even as a 13 year old, like it, it, that's the sort of thing that you would notice and that you would like, I don't know if you're gonna write that in your diary, but it's, 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 I think Hildebrand is doing such a good job of really telling us where these different people are focusing their attention. And this idea of, of hot dogs and chowder, you, you, again, like the thing that they sold at the snack bar would merit attention and description if you're a 13 year old, not so much if you're Blair, you know, who's now applying to, to graduate school at Harvard. So she does a very good job of, uh, the diction is slightly different here, but you know, she's quoting her grandmother who still I think has a lot of sway over her. Um, and, and again, the things that she's noticing are, are very much in keeping with her persona. Okay, then we're gonna look at page 86. So this is Kirby, who is really needing to kind of differentiate herself from her family. And she's off in Martha's Vineyard. Um, and she's kind of the hippie rebel who, you know, all these people have a lot of secrets, which we're gonna get to soon. But um, Kirby's are kind of, her secrets are kind of up front. So um, 86 right here, kind of in the middle. The car stops and a young man cranks down the window. He's good looking, she notes. He wears a spotless white t-shirt and Ray-Ban Wayfarers. Where are you headed, he asks. Edgartown, she says, the Shire Town Inn. Know it well, he says, hop in. Kirby hesitates, but only for a second. This is how hitchhiking works, right? When someone offers you a ride, you take it. So I love this because again, you can feel the difference. I mean, there, there's a lot of dialogue and the dialogue itself is kind of truncated, this, um, this where you're headed. You know, you're, you're getting a sense of how Kirby is really kind of mixing in with people who are much more casual and everyone's kind of, uh, you know, younger than Blair and not so kind of buttoned up and they're not talking about their ambition. It's more about who's handsome. Um, and I like the idea too of these Wayfarer sunglasses. And then of course, this, this hesitation that she has about hitchhiking which is quickly dispelled and she's got this kind of even this rhetorical question this is how hitchhiking works right you have this sense of her as being kind of insecure and kind of not quite knowing um, what she's supposed to be doing or not doing but but the language itself and what is happening really are a very good reflection 
Okay, so we've we've looked at the three daughters, uh, and, and we do, you know, that's a very good example of of these kinds of differentiation that you see with each of the narrators. And then we have, and to be clear, it's an omniscient narrator. So it's it's someone, it's, it, there is an omniscient narrator, but that narrator is getting very close to each one of these people in succession. She gets close again to Kate. She gets close again to Exalta. So we're kind of, um, it's as if you can picture like a GoPro on someone's forehead that we're very like close to their, um, well, actually in this case, it's not just on their forehead. It's kind of, it's a it's a mind reader also, whatever that would be. Um, so, so you have this sense of of them as, as, as showing us their world, but we also, Hildebrand does a good job of also actually entering into, uh, you know, their thoughts and their emotions. Okay, great. So then we're going to talk a bit about plot. So I mentioned in the first part, plot is kind of the bread and butter of these books. And honestly, part of me is like, wow, how do you do this? You know, 24 times. She does have a new book out now. So I think that makes 24. I mean, the woman is very, very good at plot. And, it, it, you know, I think part of that comes from having been well read, but you can be very well read and not good at, at formulating plot that's gripping, but that feels earned and isn't too predictable, doesn't seem too, um, you know, out of the blue. She's really, really good at it. So the, the thing that she does also with plot that's so good is there's a lot of tension in these beach reads. And the stakes are the stakes are high. When we read the very, very first part of the prologue, I mean, this is a mother whose son is being shipped off to war. I mean, the stakes literally could not get higher than the idea of losing a child. It's like this huge, um, you know, thing is happening in their family. Literally, life or death. He's far away. It sets the novel up perfectly for a lot of tension to develop. So. And we have this not, obviously, it's not just with Kate, it's with all of the different characters. So we're going to take a look at page six. So this is following Kate a little bit here. So kind of down at the, at the bottom of page six here. A tour of duty is 13 months, not a lifetime. But some of the mothers here outside the recruitment office are unknowingly saying a permanent goodbye. And Kate feels certain she's one of them. The other mothers didn't do the terrible thing that she did. So this kind of um, bombshell, like we already have literally on the page right before, actually two pages before, we have this really high stakes situation where she is sending off her only son and, you know, she loves him differently, which I think we're supposed to read as her loving him best. It was like a, the sentence is like, she didn't love him best, but she loved him differently. You know, so you get this sense of him as, as, as having sort of a very, um, you know, a soft, she has a soft spot in her heart for him. So not only is she about to, you know, she's sending this child off to war, but she also is, um, she has this secret, you know, she's done this terrible thing. So when we get to, you know, literally not until page 352, do we have a resolution of what this secret is? So Kate, who is the matriarch, has, you know, and it turns out she's harboring a few different secrets, but this is kind of the, the big one. Um, she talks in the very beginning about this thing that she's done, and then there are little references to it throughout, but we don't have any resolution to it until page 352, which is almost at the close of the novel. So Hildebrand is so good at setting up this kind of tension very early on, dropping kind of a bombshell like that, and then not having any resolution until hundreds of pages later. So on 352, uh, we're going to look at a couple of different chunks, 352 and 353. 
Oh, and this is a terrible, so she's out, she's been drinking way too much all summer, Kate has, which has led to a lot of marital strife. Uh, and, and conveniently means that the, the, uh, the dad figure, David, is kind of out of the picture, leaving the matriarchy, you know, to kind of uncover all of their secrets and, and do all of their different things. But we know that Kate has been drinking too much and in kind of this drunken stupor is, is making this confession to her daughter which is really not a great move. I mean, this, she, her daughter, her youngest daughter, who's 13 years old, just kind of literally on the verge of mother, I mean, not motherhood, on the verge of womanhood. Um, this is not a secret that she should need to carry. And yet, here's Kate making kind of a bad move on page 352. She's talking about the, her ex-husband, I mean, sorry, her, her first husband, the death of her first husband. So what she is confessing is that her husband uh, who died, the husband in the first marriage, the father of the older three children, he died supposedly cleaning his gun, which literally when that first came up in that first, uh, you know, the first instance of that, I wrote, hmm, in my marginalia, because, you know, obviously he did not kill him. He didn't shoot himself by accident, uh, having just returned from the Korean War. So you have this sense of, of that as a, as a tragedy that is yet another source of tension. And we're gonna sort of see uh, what the truth is behind that. So here we have uh, the mom, Kate, who is making this confession to Jesse. So she talks about, the mom has gotten a letter saying that in fact, he's also a philanderer, this guy who died. So you're also like, I don't think he probably just like had an accident with the gun. So she says, I wanted to confront him while the children were asleep. Kate says, I found him in his workshop cleaning his gun. And then a little further down, I let him read the letter from Lorraine. So the letter from Lorraine, of course, is that Lorraine is pregnant and it, he is the father. So Kate's husband is the father of this kid, who of course is the kid who ends up living in their guest house. So on the next page, I closed the door and walked away, Kate says, but do you know what I regret? Jessie senses that she's not expected to answer and she can't find her voice anyway. I regret not slamming the door, Kate says. So I love that. What we have here is Ellen Hildebrand is she, she sort of has this like bombshell in the very beginning, but it's really just like a little seed where we're like, uh oh, this mom has a terrible secret. And here she is explaining the terrible secret. And it is in fact that she feels responsible for her husband having killed himself. So that part feels like a tiny bit predictable to me, but then she does this thing where she says, I regret not slamming the door. So there is a little bit of a twist in that this, she feels justified in her anger. I mean, she really, this guy did not sound like a good guy, Wilder, whose name kind of says it all, really didn't seem like a great guy. So she's saying, I regret slamming the door. Of course, then she steps back from that a little bit. She kind of walks it back by saying, if I had shown anger, Wilder might have snapped to his senses and come after me to argue or plead his case. He had dramatic mood swings, problems with pills and whiskey, but I didn't realize how low his low points were. Honestly, Jessica, I wasn't thinking about him in that moment. I was thinking about myself. So here we are on page 353, finally having resolution to uh, you know the, this, this tension that began on page six. But what I like about it too is, is there is, the tension is resolved in the sense that we know what the secret was, 
But it's also, um, you know, this statement about a woman really wanting to be able to think about herself, not wanting to be thinking about other people. So she regrets it, but there is this sense of, of, of um, you know, that, that in that moment, this is what, what she was feeling was in fact this, this need to, to be true to herself. And, you know, she in this case is saying like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But what we are seeing in the subsequent generation in these three daughters are women who, you know, are making plenty of mistakes and they have their own secret, secrets, plural, but you also do see them in fact having a little more agency and having a little more, um, you know, honesty with themselves and others. So it, it's good because you do get a sense of, of the generations as getting a bit more um, empowered as this sort of matriarchy develops. Okay, so then just quickly, we're gonna run through a few of the, the same sort of plot points, not, not the same plot points, but the, the plot points with the other characters that add the same sort of tension. So with uh, Jesse, you know, we have this idea of her not wanting to go to Nantucket and how terrible it's gonna be, which of course you're like, okay, well, she's gonna meet a boy. And sure enough, she does. Turns out the boy happens to be the half brother of her half siblings which is so sensational that it should be like, we should be rolling our eyes and I should not be recommending the book, but I am anyway, because it's it's actually, I think, relatively well-earned. Um, we also have, you know, Jessie's been stealing. We have this, this moment fairly early on where she is essentially, you know, sexually assaulted by her tennis coach. So you're curious to see how that's gonna play out. Um, you have all of these different things that, that young Jessie is getting up to, even whether or not she's going to get her period. You know, there's a lot of tension that is set up at the beginning of the book. And happily, most of those things are kind of resolved very nicely by the end of the book. With Kirby, she has a big whopping secret, and we're not sure what that is. It turns out she had had an affair with a married man. Turns out that she had gotten pregnant. Turns out she had an abortion. So, it, you know, that stuff was all, those were all things that had happened already in the past summer. And then this summer, the tension is kind of whether or not she's going to, um, you know, fall in love with this guy whose mom is really not happy about their relationship. It's a very sort of Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. Um, then exalt with Exalta, we have this question of whether or not she's going to have this love affair. And with Blair, this is the one plot, kind of the tension thing that I found like a little bit, a little cheese ball, is Blair with her suspicions of her husband. So um, right from the beginning, I was very proud of myself um, when he, when she first realizes that something is up. In my mind, I, I mean, in my uh, margin, I wrote, you know, psychiatrist or therapist because he, he's clearly meeting with someone. She assumes that he's having an affair um, when I made the correct assumption that he was in fact seeing a therapist, which is actually an important statement about 1969 and how you had to sort of keep all of these things hush hush at the end of uh, at the end of the 60s. Nowadays, if you're not in therapy, there's like something wrong with you. But so my point is that in all with all of these different people, all of these different principal characters and even some of the minor characters, for example, with Pick, we have this question of like, is he going to get to Woodstock? Is he going to find his mother? You know, all, all every character has these sort of big tensions that are laid out in the very beginning of the book in these kind of brief, but very kind of spectacular phrases. And then very satisfyingly, we have resolutions to them at the end of, of the book. So this is, I think, one of the, you know, one of the sort of mainstays of this kind of beach reading is plot. And I think that she does such a good job of it. 
So that is the perfect segue into the last thing that we're going to cover today, which is her range. So Hildebrand has this excellent range. And, and I found this in the other book, too. Um, this is a woman who really knows her readership. And she understands, I think, that her readership spans, you know, younger people in their 20s. My daughter, who is, you know, a very heady reader and is, is very, um, you know, particular about what she reads and likes to read things that are that are very difficult. She loved the book, The Hotel Nantucket, that we all read last summer. So, um, you know, I think that that Hildebrand understands that someone who's 22, my daughter was 22 last summer, and someone who's 52 are both, you know, you need to have a lot of range in order to appeal to both of them. And when I'm saying range, what I simply mean is, is in this case, it's, it's, it's with your characters, it's with their circumstances, it's basically not even so much themes, but kind of like the material that you are using. So if we look at page um, 97, so this is when I first noted it because, so I had been, um, you know, very happily reading about, I guess I was reading about Kate, maybe about the mom. So as a 53 year old woman who has children in her twenties, I really related to this idea of having, I mean, essentially I am exactly Kate's age. And I, although I really did not identify so much with her, which is interesting, but I did identify with the idea of, of having a, a son go off to war happily. One of our kids has type one diabetes, so he is not allowed to um, you know, be in combat, which is the only good thing about having type one diabetes. Our other son, I think might be in graduate school forever. I'm hoping that's the case. So, um, but the idea of a draft is so horrifying. So anyway, I really identified in some ways with Kate, but I, as I was reading through with Kate and I came to this sentence on page 97, which is, um, it, it's underneath uh, this chapter heading that says suspicious minds. Underneath it is this sentence. In Boston, the temperature hits 80 degrees and Blair just entering her third trimester has outgrown all of her maternity clothes. She only has one dress that still fits. So this idea of um, two of my three babies were born in, in October and I thought I was gonna die. September is the hottest month in California. And I just really remember that discomfort of, of just being in really hot climates and, and, and feeling just like, oh my God, please, I'm ready to be done with this. So the interesting thing was that I went from really relating in some ways with Kate here and feeling sad for her and her son being far away at war, to then being like, oh my gosh, wait, I'm so happy to be here with this pregnant, young pregnant woman who I can also really relate to. So when I'm talking about range, I simply mean that you can, there's really something for everyone. Um, I can't really relate to Exalta because I'm not there yet so much, but it's kind of interesting. And I'm like, oh, good for Exalta for getting with Bill Crimmins, you know, but but you also have this sense of, of, of people that you can relate to um, much more kind of closely. So we have um, Jesse, of course, and we have Pick. We have this kind of young love thing. We have this kind of, uh, you know, she's just turning 13. So, you know, her body is changing. And those are all things um, that are very relatable too, because, you know, everyone has sort of been through that or they have children going through that. Uh, and then um, with then we have with Kirby, this notion too of, of, of sort of um, the turmoil of, of your young 20s, I guess she's still in college, but you know, the, the, these sort of high stakes things, she's getting arrested. Um, she is having these love affairs. She's trying to figure out who she is. She's really trying to individuate and, and be apart from her family in a very important way. You know, she's taking a stand and she's going to the other 
super bougie island, um, you know, to really, really find herself. Um, it's actually slightly less bougie, I think, than Nantucket. But you, you have this sense of, of, of these different phases of life. Then you have Blair, who is a young married woman who is pregnant. So you really have something for everyone, um, which is very important. There's a, just a, an enormous appeal, either sort of in a nostalgic way or, um, you know, for each kind of stage of life. The other thing that having this kind of range does, which is actually very important, is there's a lot of natural tension that is building. So you you have, um, you know, we talked before about the plot, but you have the way that these stories are all interacting and sort of all woven together is so well done. So you have these different women at different stages of their lives and the way that all of their different lives are sort of inflecting, you know, you have Blair, who's standing in as a mother, who, you know, when she's taking her younger sister to buy her first bra, you have all of these kinds of um, this fluidity among all of these, these women in the family. Um, but you also have the tension kind of ratcheting up because you understand Exalta's expectations for her granddaughters. And you have Kate's expectations when she's not super hammered. Um, for her daughters and for her mother. So each person, um, you have this kind of nice uh, reflection of one character onto the other. Uh, there's also just a lot of like cliffhangery stuff that's happening. You know, you, when you switch, you know, from, from learning about, uh, it, you know, in, in this case, we're learning about Kate and her first husband and the tragedy of his death. And then suddenly we're with Blair, who is uncomfortable and pregnant and has no maternity clothes that fit her. Um, you know, it's automatically creating kind of a, um, you know, a cliffhanger. I mean, it's not really like that cliffhangery, but like a little bit. So you have this nice tensioning, tension that's ratcheting up because you are in fact switching from one character to the next because you have this really nice broad range. So. I am going to leave it at that. We uh, have covered quite a bit today. And then in our third section, we are going to talk about the really great use of figurative language. Uh, Hildebrand is really um, impressive. And as you all know, I have really high expectations for figurative language. We're going to talk in particular about her use of the house as a metaphor and symbol, which is really well done. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of the faults, a couple things that I thought um, maybe uh, sort of stamped this as a, a, a genre that is not maybe the most demanding that we will read. I think that's a diplomatic way to say it. Um, and then we're going to talk about the, the story arcs and then the close of the novel. So join us for part three of our discussion of Ellen Hildebrand's Summer of 69.